Before we get started, we have some very exciting news to share. The second annual PetCon NYC will take place November 17th and 18th at the Javits Center. In case you're not familiar, PetCon is two days of insightful panels, fun activations, and can't-miss meet-and-greets with your favorite celebrity pets like Tuna Melts My Heart, Harlow and Sage, and Hamlet the Piggy. You'll discover new brands and can shop our highly curated selection of innovative favorite products. Hang out in the dog adoption garden and adoptable cat cafe, and maybe even bring home a furry best friend or two. We just started selling tickets and have a limited number of early bird tickets available, so make sure to visit petcon.co, that's P-E-T-C-O-N.co, and get your tickets today. You won't want to miss this. Now back to our podcast. Hi, I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to The Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it, we're obsessed too. The health of people and the health of animals and the health of our environment are all one and the same. And we can't really separate them. And you can't talk about human health separately from the food we eat and the place we live. That was Dr. William Karish, the Executive Vice President for Health and Policy at EcoHealth Alliance. Dr. Karish will discuss One Health, the phrase he coined to describe the interdependence of healthy ecosystems, animals, and people, his work to prevent the spread of infectious diseases, and small ways we can make a positive impact. Now let's get back to Dr. Karish. Okay, so welcome Dr. Karish. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. We are so honored that this is your first podcast ever. It is, it is. (laughs) This is great. Um, Okay, awesome. So your bio is a mile long, so we'll start with like just the, the, <laughs> the most recent title. So Executive Vice President of Health and Policy for EcoHealth Alliance, among a million other things. How did you get started in animal work? Oh, I started many years ago, actually as a child. When I was very young, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and my mother was very tolerant, and so was my father. So I had baby blue jays and little birds, cardinals, and I raised squirrels and raccoons, and we always had dogs. So right as a child, I was like fascinated with wildlife, fascinated with animals, and they were in the house. We let them go. Everybody got released. Um, And so I had a dream all my life really to work with wildlife and work with animals. And how did you start down that path? I went to uh, school in South Carolina, and I majored in ecology, behavioral ecology, it was called at the time, kind of animal behavior. And then I got my first job at the National Zoo as a zookeeper. And I was very excited. I was an elephant keeper, and I took care of the giant pandas and large hoofstock. And my goal was to go on to graduate school, study animal behavior. And somehow I got sidetracked into applying to vet school and got accepted to veterinary school at Georgia. Um, but it's still with that kind of passion about working with wildlife and wildlife health around the world. And so I ended up finishing vet school, and I was very lucky and got a residency, my postdoctoral training at the San Diego Zoo. So I got tremendous amounts of experience there and worked at a few other zoos and started international projects in Indonesia, Malaysian Borneo, in Kenya, Tanzania, started working with wildlife. And working at the zoos, what was that experience like? What was your day-to-day? What kind of took up the bulk of your time in that phase? Well, it's a fascinating place to be a veterinarian because... All day long, you're seeing different types of patients. The challenging work, of course, is working with people. So (laughs) as they say about veterinary work, the clients are difficult, the patients are easy. Um, 
But in that setting, you work with birds, you work with reptiles, you work with small frogs, and suddenly next is an elephant or it might be a lion, and it involves dentistry and orthopedic surgery and obstetrics, gynecology. So <laughs> your day is so diverse, and it really keeps you intellectually stimulated. And you work with people who really love animals, so it's a, it's a great place for animal lovers. And so from there, you were doing all these international things. What was that transition like? Well, it just grew over the years. I've ended up having projects in over 40 countries around the world, mostly developing countries. So Africa and South America and Asia and finding local partners, colleagues, like-minded colleagues that want to do projects together. And then we team up. And that's really why I transitioned and went to work for EcoHealth Alliance, where I am now, because the Alliance part of that name is about partnerships around the world. So while our organization, we're based right here in New York as a charity or a nonprofit, uh, but we have a very small footprint here and a huge footprint around the world because of this partnership with local NGOs, local universities, actually even local government officials and agencies to do wildlife work, as the name would imply, Eco Health Alliance, about ecology and health and tie it into the health of animals, the health of the planet and the health of people. And just touching on Eco Health Alliance a little more, what's the blurb about your focus and what you guys do? Well, nowadays, because of this threat of emerging infectious diseases, these diseases that spring out of nowhere like Ebola now or yellow fever that's recently in South America, or these strange viruses that come to, from bats, we're getting asked much more um, to kind of link that to nature and ecology. Why do these diseases occur? So EcoHealth Alliance has really moved in this direction of, we call it pandemic prevention. You know, Can we stand between the next pandemic and people? Can we actually prevent them? And it sounds like a lofty goal, but there's a lot of things we can do to reduce the risk of these diseases emerging because they all link back to what people do. And if we can just modify our behavior slightly, we can actually reduce the risk of a big outbreak or the next pandemic. So speaking of the connection there and One Health, the phrase you coined, what is One Health? One Health is a concept came up with just to describe the reality that the health of people and the health of animals and the health of our environment are all one and the same, and that we can't really separate them. And you can't talk about human health separately from the food we eat and the place we live. And so it's really a bringing people together to work on this together. So traditionally we said, oh, human health, medical doctors have to worry about human health. And it's all their responsibility. If something goes wrong, we should blame them. But they can't actually do it all themselves. Animal health has a big role in human health. 60% of infectious diseases are shared between animals and people. And these new emerging diseases like Ebola and SARS, most of them are linked back to wildlife, like 75% come from wildlife. So if we do a better job managing wildlife, taking care of wildlife, protecting wild places, we're going to reduce the number of these outbreaks and pandemic diseases. So it's really about bringing that together. So that's why we call it One Health. It's, you can work in this space and have a huge beneficial effect in another space if we really work together. In working to prevent these outbreaks and things from happening, what are the groups that you work closely with? It's a very interesting dynamic because you have these big global bodies, the World Health Organization. The, Which you're also involved with. I do. I advise <laughs> and help whenever I can. And the World Organization for Animal Health, which I volunteer for and help as much as I can. 
um, groups like the United Nations Environment Program, there's the Convention on Biodiversity, there's the World Bank, there's all these huge, big global organizations that are very concerned about these issues. But we feel very strongly EcoHealth Alliance, while we want to work with these global bodies, because they kind of set policy, they, they, they set guidelines, you know, they kind of plays a leadership role. The action happens on the ground. So it's people who work with animals. It's people who work in the forest or live in the forest. It's fisher folk. The the way they manage their business, the way they manage their livelihoods, uh, all have a big impact on health. So where EcoHealth Alliance also focuses is right on the ground. So our partners in Malaysia, we work in Borneo. We have this great relationship with the Sabah Wildlife Department. And there's a great team of people there working with elephants and orangutans. And then we work with the forestry department because they're trying to make decisions on how much land they should clear to make some money and how much land they should keep to protect their health. Because we know as, as you clear certain types of tropical forests, diseases emerge. So now people are getting sick and the doctors now have to take care of sick people, so they're spending money on that, on illness, but sometimes that costs more than they made from doing the timber operations or cutting down the trees. So we're trying to have discussions with local people so they can make sensible decisions about what's in their benefit. Should they go in the direction of tourism, or should it be logging? Should we have a mixed business model? You know, can we do a little of this and a little of that? What's the safest thing to do? And so that's where we feel like we can really have lots of impact is working with local people. And how do you figure out what local areas to devote the most resources and figuring out what ways? How do you guys go about figuring that out and knowing where to devote your time? Well, interestingly, EcoHealth Alliance was really the first group. We did a global evaluation of all the characteristics that are linked with emerging infectious diseases. So the way I was taught in school was take all the data from where these diseases occurred, put it on a map, and then you now know where the bad places are. But that's a backward, that's looking in the rearview mirror. So what did at EcoHealth Alliance and said, rather than just looking at where they occurred, let's look at what characteristics were there. Uh, were there changes in agricultural practices? Were people changing the way they grow food? Or people changing the way they use land? Are populations increasing or dis- decreasing? So we looked at like 250 different factors of uh, human behavior and associated those with where the diseases were breaking out and then did a map of those behaviors. And that tells you where the risk of, in the future is for those diseases. Instead of just looking backwards into history, we actually project forward. So it's a lot like we um, do with earthquakes. So we know where the tectonic plates are around the planet. So we know that those places are high at risk because of that characteristic for earthquakes. So then we could do things like, well, we build our buildings a little stronger. We'll put more rebar in the concrete. And so they have building codes that protect us from earthquakes where we need to. And we don't have to waste money doing it where we don't need to worry about earthquakes. So we use that same approach for these diseases, like where are the underlying characteristics and that's where we should focus on. So that was step one. And step two is we only work where we're invited. So we don't push ourselves on anybody. We work with local partners, with local governments. If they want us to be there, we work at their invitation. We work with them. We don't push our agenda. We're always there in a real partnership. 
And how long has the EcoHealth Alliance been around? The organization, it started out, it's more than 45 years ago, and it started out as a wildlife conservation organization. It's called the Wildlife Trust, originally the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust, linked to the Jersey Island, the Channel Islands off the coast of England. Not our Jersey here, (laughs) but the Jersey across the Atlantic Ocean, the other one. which New Jersey was named for. (laughs) So we started out that way. And then um, as the organization grew and we started to see this linkage between ecology and the environment and health, we changed our name about eight years ago to EcoHealth Alliance. And how long have you been with them? Just about that same amount of time, eight years. (laughs) And it's the best job I've ever had in my life. I get up every morning excited to go to work. Yeah, what is your data like? Do you travel a lot? I do travel a fair amount. Um, I have projects right now in South Africa, a big project on a vector-borne, a disease that's spread by mosquitoes called Rift Valley Fever, and it's devastating to animals, and it affects people. People die, animals die. Um, It's a really bad mosquito-borne disease. I have some projects in Egypt and in Jordan. Um, Those involve, like, camels and people and bats. Um, and then I do a lot of this work with the international organizations. So I go to Geneva or Paris for the meetings of those kind of global organizations. I go to Washington, D.C. a lot and, and meet with our policymakers and decision makers. Tomorrow I go to Saskatoon, Canada, way up north, and there's actually a, a conference, maybe a thousand people meeting about One Health. And so speaking of uh, mosquito diseases, I feel like Zika is one that we all think about a lot. What's, uh, is that something that you've done research on or been involved with at all? Yeah, we've looked at it some, especially with travel and trade. Another thing we're doing at EcoHealth Alliance is we do a lot of mathematical modeling and analyses. And so we look at passenger travel data and can actually predict where diseases spread with people. So when Zika came to South America and Brazil, we could look at passenger travel data to see which cities in the United States were at highest risk of people arriving. So Miami, Florida, cities in Texas, New York City. And then by notifying, we let the public health officials know they generally have a sense of what's going on anyway, but we can actually show them on paper where passenger flow is by percentages. Same for this Ebola outbreak in West Africa of all the airports in the United States where people are most likely to arrive from an outbreak like that, New York is high on that list. When the last outbreak had occurred, we were able, we actually predicted before it happened that Texas and Dulles Airport, New York, were all in the top five cities, and that all turned out to be true. People did actually arrive with Ebola. So there's some utility in early warning, and then the other utility is, of course, where there's very low risk. People don't have to be waste money and time and attention worrying about things they shouldn't, don't need to worry about. Zika virus is still going on and it's still going to be a problem and probably years to come and it's, it's a very sad disease as a mosquito-borne disease in people because what we've been seeing in the Americas with the you know, birth defects and the, the effects on kids. Can the research and work you're doing help once the disease is already spreading or is it more in preventing? Well, we'd like to focus on prevention because we think not enough people are paying attention to it. And emergency response 
is very well developed. So lots of organizations do emergency response, big, big organizations. So you have the International Red Cross and the International Medical Corps, and you have government agencies and our CDC. So you have tens of thousands of people who specialize in response. So as I said, we're not a big organization, so we like to focus on things that aren't getting enough attention where people aren't paying attention. So we work upstream. We're trying to say, how many of these can we prevent? Um, before we have to respond. Prevention's always cheaper, it's more effective, it's much nicer for the people, it's much better for animals if we can prevent some of these things. So we try to focus there. Why do you think there isn't as much focus on prevention? There's a few reasons. I think it's partially human nature. We tend to do, we tend to ignore things until they happen. Um, I'm sure all of us in our lives could be doing things a little better to make ourselves safer, but we kind of hope that that doesn't happen to us. You run out in the rain, you might get hit by lightning, but maybe I'll take a risk or, you know, have one extra glass of wine at the bar before you leave. Maybe you don't need it. So I think it's part of it's just human nature and wishful thinking that these things might not happen. It's hard to demonstrate value. If you talk to an economist, they'll say, well, it's cost avoided. Well, cost avoid is not the same as having money in your pocket. It's just that, oh, yeah, someday I won't have to spend that. Um, So you have to really be thinking big about the future to work on cost avoidance. Um, And that's, you know, more thing. Even for government, it's hard because the public demands action today. So there's always a demand for response, the demand for preventing something that might not happen. It's, It's tough, even at a political level, to do. Yeah. And where do you get your funding from to be able to do this work? Um, most of our, some of our funding comes from private individuals and, and private donors. Um, a good deal of it comes from different government agencies across the U.S. government and the World Bank. Uh, we have great partnerships in European countries, um, so we'll either do a project jointly with them. Um, but a, a good bit of our money is from... Uh, different types of government grants across the spectrum, development, defense, security, um, National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation. We're very science-oriented, so we compete well in that space of writing um, really good quality scientific grants. All our work is very applied, though, and that does make you, we're not um, truly in that academic world of science. We're more in applied science. But I think that actually appeals to a lot of the funders or donors. So how can listeners get involved and help? Well, I think the average person, I mean, of course, we would welcome anyone supporting EcoHealth Alliance that would like to, and you can come on our website um, and do that. But I think we all just have a role to play in uh, paying attention to what we're doing and how we interact with the environment. And I don't want to sound, you know, get too airy-fairy about recycling and turning off your lights. But interestingly enough, that has a huge impact on the future of our planet and the future of health. So you just think about the issue with plastics. There's something we can all do about that. Um, And that affects animals. It really affects wildlife, our oceans. And then, of course, plastics come from oil and non-renewable resources so it would reduce the demand there so it's interesting how just in our daily lives just turning off the light when you leave the room can actually benefit animals and the planet and i know it doesn't feel that way when you do but it should feel that way um 
And then I think everybody should be, certainly in our country, we have an opportunity to be outspoken publicly about the things we care about. And our politicians and leaders, you know, lots of people are critical of, of them at the same time. If we don't tell them what we want, how are they going to know what we want? So I think, you know, saying your voice, I think social media is you know, making a big impact in our world and in our country now today. You know, it's giving a voice to people. Remember to go vote. You know, it's our country, and I think politicians actually do want to represent us, and they need to know what that means, and I think that's a big step forward. So talk to us about EcoHealthy Pets. Yeah, EcoHealthy Pets is a little project, and you can find it on our website at ecohealthalliance.org. And it's also an app for your iPhone. If you want to go shopping for an unusual pet, you can actually call up this app. And we rank uh, different species that might be in the pet trade, like bearded lizards, or you might see monkeys in there, or parrots, and those things. And we rank them about the conservation status, like are these endangered species? It might even be illegal if you see it for sale, or they're very common. And that's kind of a good thing if they're going to be in the pet trade. They're easy to care for or they're very difficult to care for. So it really informs you about how much effort you're going to take because a lot of them are long, a lot of responsibility. And some live for 30 and 40 years. So it's a long responsibility, a lot of responsibility for a very long time. And so we just have it easily laid out and you can look at these characteristics depending on who you are. So, you know, we've had people that... Uh, parrots tend to, you know, can live for 30 or 40 years. But not everybody knows that, so we want to explain that. So some people have a commitment to it. They're going to be there. They, you know, have something in their will about who's going to take care of this parrot after they pass away. And so big thought, and then that's a good thing. And then other people might just are like, well, I, just, I don't care. You want to have the right animal partnered up, just like with the breed of dog or breed of cat. You want to match them up with the owner's needs and abilities and personalities. And where did the idea for that come out of? It became an idea because the trade in wildlife is huge coming in North America. We're the officially the largest consumer of wildlife in the world, the imported into the North America. It's, we did a study, it was a billion animals over five years. And it just flood, they flood in, and most of them die. So it's kind of, we thought, well, this is sad. A lot of it's because people don't know what they're getting when they're buying them. And they're mostly people buying them as pets and not zoos. Buying them as pets. A lot, of course, are the tropical fish industry is a huge number. Um, and, and smaller animals, but people are buying, you know, Endangered species are illegal. Some of that's smuggled in, so that gets caught at the border. So we said, well, law enforcement can only do so much. How about doing community education and outreach? So we created this system called EcoHealthy Pets. So people could look at that and read about if they're going to go buy a gift for their child or they're going to go to a pet store together. You can just reuse it right on your phone and make some sensible decisions while you're there. So I mentioned bearded dragon. You should come to our office and visit. We actually have bearded dragons, and we have some snakes, (laughs) and we have some little salamanders. And in the office, you know, those are perfectly fine pets. They're easy to care for. It is a commitment. You know, you can't just, like, get tired of it and throw it out in the backyard because then we'd have invasive alien species running around the country. The app is just there to, to get you to think a little more about what you think you're really willing to do. Speaking of that, some pets are not allowed in various places like hedgehogs in right. New York City and, and pigs. So why do you think that is? 
Yes, and that's part of the challenge in the U.S., that different cities and different states have different laws, and we don't have any national approach. So there's the other reason why we were looking at eco-healthy pets is to kind of help people across the country kind of make some decisions. Uh, some are dangerous. Some are threats to the environment if they get loose. Now that pet pythons have been released in southern Florida and they just invaded all of the Everglades National Parks, they don't belong there. They weren't there before. Really hard to get rid of. Um, it's a, that's generally the case with these invasive species. It's like Pandora's box. Once you open the box and let them out, you can't get them back in. And what happens when they do get out? Well, they start killing native wildlife. And so, you know, it's a, it's an interesting ethical debate, even amongst you know people concerned with animal welfare, because now you're choosing one species over another. Um, but in the case of the pythons, they were not supposed to be there. A lot of people don't care about snakes. So they're not worried about the welfare of the snakes, but some people are. But in the meantime, they're eating raccoons and they're eating other animals that are supposed to be there. So it disrupts that whole ecosystem eventually. So it just turns into a kind of an unfolding mess. And trying to catch a python is very difficult <laughs> in the swamp because they'll go underwater and they hide and um, it's virtually impossible. So we'd love to hear about some of your experiences in the field over the years. Can you share some of those stories with us? Oh, there's so many. I don't even know where to begin. So, um, I've, you know, I've had, I've been so lucky. I have a blessed life, I think, what people would say, and I feel that way. But I've worked with the greatest people around the world and the, and the most wonderful animals. Um, I love working with elephants in the wild. Um, and I mentioned that I was a zookeeper when I was a young pup. Um, and that really raised my comfort level for working with wild elephants out in the forest or out in the savannas, in the jungles. Uh, so those have been extraordinary experiences. And most places where I work, we're not in vehicles, we're not in helicopters, we're just on foot. And you have to sneak up to them very carefully because elephants have exquisite hearing. You have to move basically silently. And of course, they have a great sense of smell because of that big trunk. And so you always have to stay downwind um, so they can't smell your scent coming from you know half a mile away and and be able to sneak up on them and my job typically has been to dart them with a tranquilizer dart so you have to get very close in the forest maybe 30 40 feet away it's pretty close just like across the room and poke them with a dart and then you have about 10 minutes till it takes effect so it's just you and a, a unhappy elephant uh, totally exposed because there's no vehicles and you have no protection. Uh, generally, where we work, we don't bring guns um, into the forest because often it's more dangerous to let people start shooting guns around you than it is just to run or hide. Um, so I've been, you know, stalked and chased and trapped by elephants a, a few times and come fairly close to death, I guess you might say. I've been pinned down behind trees and and just sitting there praying and waiting for the drug to take effect or the elephant to go away. Luckily, I'm still here to talk about it. Um, and so not all of my colleagues have made been that lucky. I've been uh, stalked and almost pinned down by jaguars at night in you know the middle of the South American jungles in Bolivia. Fallen out of boats, fallen out of helicopters. It's a, it's a rough and tumble. Amazed you're still life. here. <laughs> and I'm still here. I know. I feel like a cat with nine <laughs> lives. I think I still have two or three. 
I'm hoping. Knock on wood. And and you kept going back even after these experiences. Oh, absolutely. Yes, and you know, the situation where you're just like, I think I just almost got killed. You know, you always ask yourself, like, am I getting paid enough for this? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the next morning you go like, I don't even need to get paid to do this. This is so great a job. So, you know, you go back and forth, uh, even sometimes in the same day. Um, so with that elephant that, that you were tranquilizing, what was the, the goal there? Yeah, we were trying to find out um, the range of the elephants because it was um, working with the government in Cameroon for that particular instance. Um, and I've worked like seven or eight countries in Africa doing the same work. But this was in Cameroon and the, they were establishing a national park basically to give some land to protect elephants for them to do it. But they had ideas for the boundaries of the park before they actually knew where the elephants went and how they travel around. So they travel huge distances. So we were putting radio collars on the elephants to try and get a sense of their home range to see if the, the way the park was designed would actually be adequate for the elephants or were they leaving the park for someplace else and there's several steps you can do if that's the case, which is you can do some land swaps, you can you know, work with the government, work with local people about adjusting borders would be one idea. Um, you could maybe add some other land that's also desirable. So there's some ways to, as you do, you know, it's kind of falls in this category, wildlife management, and what do you do with national parks and protected areas uh, to make sure they have adequate space. Uh, so we were um, putting radio collars on those elephants, see where they go, what land they were using. It was really useful. That approach is actually used in many different countries. Uh, we put radio collars on bats and see where they migrate because we're really interested. Bats, you know, everybody's afraid of bats about these infectious diseases like Ebola. There's a, quite a number of diseases that bats have, including rabies. But bats also really... Uh, most of our forests, so over half the trees in the forest are pollinated by bats or dispersed by bats. So if we didn't have bats, we wouldn't have forests. We wouldn't have a lot of the food we eat. Wouldn't Tequila is pollinated by bats. You wouldn't be able to drink a margarita. So, I mean, they play an important role in our society even today. Um, and so we do similar studies like with radio collaring bats to see where they need to go, where they migrate. Um, are there certain times of year they migrate? Are there certain times of year they spread disease other, as opposed to others, which kind of turns out to be true. So there's a little times in the year a bat might shed a virus. The rest of the time it's perfectly safe. You don't have to worry about them. So there's a lot we can learn from those types of studies. And how do you catch the bat to, <laughs> to put the it's, collar on? <laughs> yes. Um, it, well... It's always good to work at night because <laughs> the bats are out. Um, but there's several different uh, techniques with nets. There's some very, very fine nets. They're called mist nets because it's almost like mist. And the bats can't detect them with their sonar because the net's so fine. So they fly into them. Um, there's some others you can set up that are string like a harp. And the bats fly into the strings and they slide down them and they go into a little tray. Um, and then some of the large ones you can just hand catch you know put a net up there and catch them some of these bats the wingspans as big as ours and they look like little foxes they're called flying foxes and they have beautiful face just like a fox and they fly they're really really adorable animals actually <laughs> not the common perception no <laughs> adorable that's right. it's usually that's not right. associated with bats no. there's another there's another bat called the panda bat and it's black and white and it's just to die for you just would want to have one 
it would make a terrible pet. I would not recommend anyone to have a bat for a pet. But, um, but some of them are really beautiful and wonderful. And so when you discover that there's certain seasons where they're more likely to spread disease, what do you then do with that data? That's where this community outreach and those kinds of things. So there's several points. One is um, it means at certain times of year, doctors should be on more heightened alert because there's like rare events and doctors, just like your doctor, my doctor, they're seeing people every day over and over and over and you get in these patterns. But if once a year, it's like come flu season, doctors kind of know to be kind of more on the outlook for that. So we can do that with these same diseases like, oh, it's, you know, it's about the time of year where this like Nipah virus is one of these viruses that comes from bats. Um, and you make sure the doctors, everybody's paying more attention so they can do more rapid treatment. They don't go like, oh, I think you just have the flu, go home. You know, so you want to have a little more heightened alertness, but you can't do that all year round because you just get blasé again. So it's really nice that you can actually pick out a time of year. And then also for the people, you can warn people that, you know, this is not such, you know, this is less safe time to come in contact with bats. Um, some of these bats are like in the fruit trees and those kinds of things. So kind of like leave them alone right now, you know, leave them alone, and you know, it's safer. We've talked a lot about animals spreading diseases to humans. Can humans spread diseases to animals as well? Yes. It's the other point about One Health, it's not one direction. I didn't say it was One, dire- one Health, One Direction. It's definitely both. Um, and we've seen this for years. So I used to work in um, Indonesia and Malaysia and Borneo with baby orangutans. And they used to be big in the pet trade. People would have them as pets. And, of course, they would get tuberculosis from humans. So tuberculosis really is truly a human disease, and it gets into animals. And when it gets into great apes like orangutans or gorillas or chimps or even monkeys, they just drop dead. And you can treat them for a little while, but after you stop treatment, they drop dead. So it's a horrible thing, and it's really a human disease. So it's actually one of those cases of One Health where, like, if we can make people healthy, we can protect the animals. Same with measles. Measles is a human disease, and it kills gorillas. So where you have tourism, ecotourism to go see the gorillas um, or people living around those areas where they're gorillas for tourism, you want to make sure everybody's vaccinated for measles and it would protect the gorillas. It's great for people. You don't want people to get measles either, but it's really good for the gorillas. So it's a great example of this One Health going that other way also about protecting animals just by working together. You know, I'm, I'm totally for... I'm a, let's say I'm a veterinarian and I care about the animals. So you're like, oh, don't waste your time taking care of people. That's not true. We have to work together. I'm a big advocate for vaccinating people for measles because it protects animals. So, you know, we can actually help each other. What are your thoughts on eating exotic meats and, and diseases that can come from that? Well, we certainly know there's a risk for eating certain types of animals, especially if they're Affected with certain types of diseases. So all of these Ebola outbreaks we know of are linked back to eating or handling, touching, butchering something of an animal, a wild animal, that was infected with the Ebola virus. Now, some of those were gorillas. Sometimes it's chimpanzees. Um, There's a lot of links to different types of bats. We actually haven't proven that link yet. But there's a lot of evidence that supports that bats carry it, um, but don't get sick. And gorillas and chimps can get it, 
and they do get sick and people eat gorillas and chimps and that starts an outbreak. Now they're rare events, so you have people eating wild animals all the time there and when I talk to them, they go like, oh, we eat them every day, we never get sick. So it's like people here that go like, I smoke cigarettes every day and I've never <laughs> gotten cancer. And it's, it's true, it's not just an immediate every time thing, you do it. So we have to kind of get that message that there is a risk and the outcome is horrible. And if you could eat something else, it's probably safer. So we certainly encourage, um, if you're going to eat animals, they probably should be raised in a safe way and you know come from a good place. And this is domestic animals for 10,000 years have been living with humans for that purpose. Some parts of the world are safer. I know a lot of people in the U.S., they hunt deer and they and, and hunt ducks. And we don't have a huge number of diseases. We don't have big outbreaks in the U.S. because... It, we seem to be in a safer area. We don't have a lot of those um, unusual diseases like that. There's always a few. There's some parasites that people can get. But if you cook your food and wash your hands, just like your mother always told you to do, you're a lot safer. So there's some things you can do to be safer and protected. I think there's a lot of concern about in Africa because it's, you know, for us, it's a different kind of wildlife. And you know, we charismatic, gorillas are charismatic, chimpanzees are charismatic. Um, and so in our culture, we feel, you know, very upset to see them being killed and eaten. Um, in their culture, they might feel that way about something uh, here, like a moose. Um, so, you know, there's a, it's a funny human nature quality about it. All right, so let's talk about healthy pets and healthy people and the connection there and what people can do. Yeah, it's a... It's a great example of this one health concept we've been talking about, which is, you know, simple ways, because we do, even between pets, and not just pets, even our farm animals, um, there's a relationship because we do share diseases. So there's things we can do. I mean, we're thinking about, it's not just, washing your hands is always great, but everything we do to have a healthier animal is also makes it better for people. So rabies is a great example. Rabies is probably the most horrible disease a person could ever get, and it's the same for a dog. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible way to die. And in the U.S., we're really good about it. And if you look globally, 50 or 60,000 people sadly die of rabies every year, and the easiest way to control that is to vaccinate dogs. It costs almost, it's for pennies, you can vaccinate dogs. It costs thousands of dollars to treat a person, and it doesn't always work, and they die a horrible death. So it's just the most perfect example. And there's other diseases, there's leptospirosis. I can give you a long list that most people have never heard of, but their doctors know about them, and they're serious diseases. But the better job we do of keeping our pets healthy, the better job we do with keeping livestock healthy and poultry healthy, because you um, eventually, if you if you do eat chicken or you do eat beef, you know that's eventually ending up in your kitchen. So the healthier those animals are raised, the safer you are. And I do, as I mentioned. Don't forget to wash your hands. Um, so there's things we can do to really kind of break down the, um, that bridge of, of diseases spreading. But it all works upstream. I'm always saying, you know, let's work upstream in prevention. So the healthier your animals are, the safer you and your children and your parents are. Um, and the same with the food systems, too. 
Thank you so much for joining us. This was so informative and hopefully people will take all of this advice and do their part to prevent the spread of diseases. And hopefully everyone learned a lot. Thank you. It was my pleasure. This is great. My first podcast. I'm still excited. I want to do another one. We are so honored. We'll have you back. That was Dr. William Karish, the Executive Vice President for Health and Policy at EcoHealth Alliance. To learn more and support the EcoHealth Alliance, visit ecohealthalliance.org. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us an awesome review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. To listen to past episodes, visit petinsider.com slash podcast. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon.